This is Creative Banter, a creativity and philosophy-focused podcast hosted by Cody Schultz and Ben Horn. One of the scariest parts of working with a film camera is that you never truly know what you are going to get after you expose a frame. Was the metering right? Will I accidentally flash the film, exposing it and ruining the photograph? Or will I mess up development, leading to a paranoid fear for the next few months before I force myself to try again. Not to mention that companies such as Fujifilm keep pausing production, leading to increased prices and a fear that they'll cease production altogether. This week, we discuss these fears, along with some interesting photography products, including one that I honestly didn't pay much attention to before opening my mouth to discuss. Toward the end of our discussion, we talk about the value we bring to the table and a bit on why we feel we have nothing worth sharing. Let's dive right into it, shall we? not expecting them to be as expensive as they're going to be so yeah that's a fun surprise i would imagine it's the sort of thing where one wears out faster than the other or do they both wear out about the same no about the same yeah. interesting um, but they they last like forever okay. because you don't put a lot of miles on them you put maybe i don't know two thousand miles a year on and that's like heavy riding depending on like for me at least it would be mm-hmm. so i don't know you're looking at like four years worth of wear that works for them oh and i'm pretty i'm pretty sure the tires that are on it now are factory so like and it's a 2003 so they're just now like getting to the point where they need to be replaced like if anything they've only been replaced once before yeah so you're looking at maybe depending on how much you ride and road conditions all that kind of thing yeah probably like five to ten years for something like that but uh, yeah, that's always a fun time when you realize how expensive that is because I think I've only done it once before. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also doesn't help that I have a bunch of other photography and like just general expenses that come up this time of year. So I'm like, hmm, yeah, that's nice. It, it all comes in, in pairs or groups or clusters or yeah. armies of, of expenses coming in at the same time. And I don't know. I don't know why it works that way, but it it always it always does seem to work out that way. Unfortunately, yeah. Spring is always like my most expensive time of the year because it's like website renews, and then it's um, like car insurance. It's getting ready for like camping reservations, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. It is what it is, but yeah. So there's that. But on the bright side, I think i finally got over my fear of developing film oh yeah because you had that experience where it didn't work out so well with the four by five you'd been sitting on for a while yeah so i had been sitting on film for a bit i developed i want to say like two months ago i was the last time that i developed any film and i posted about it in the discord group that something had gotten messed up with the during development where the images just didn't turn out right there's like streaking and 
uneven huh. development. Do you know so, why, what, what could have caused that? I have some guesses. I don't know exactly what. Um, they go back and forth. It used to be a big thing about like rinsing or pre-washing your film to get like the the almost the basic layer, the first layer of your film off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that used to be a big thing. Now most film companies are like, yeah, you really don't have to. Yeah. I don't know if that played into part with it because I normally don't pre-wash my film. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that somehow messed with something. I can't really imagine that it would have because it doesn't make sense if it's like an optional step. Like, um, More realistically, I think the chemicals just weren't properly mixed. So you had, um, with the developer that I'm using, it's Pyrocat HD. And so it's a two-part solution. You do um, one part solution A, one part solution B to 100 parts water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get your developer once it's mixed. And I think what happened was that those two parts of like A and B just kind of think mixed properly. They just sat or something along those lines or... I don't know. Is like is there an expiration on the on the chemistry that they that they you have to be aware of or anything like that? Not really. Uh, Pyrocat typically lasts um, like eight to twelve months. Once it's as long as it's um, separated, like A and B are separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, B will last longer than that. A typically expires a little bit quicker. And the other thing to keep in mind is when you like mix it with water to have a working solution. Um, it's you're supposed to use it within a half hour. All of that stuff I already did. Yeah. Like I went through all those steps. Yeah, because you've done um, that before. So yeah. Yeah. This chem this chemistry I bought in I think September. So it's not expired by any means. There are ways to expand that um, that lifetime as well. Like if you use, um, I believe it's glycol. If you mix it instead of in when you mix the initial batches of a and b if instead of mixing it with water you mix mix it with this uh glycol chemistry it um makes it more from my understanding which is very basic but it makes it more like syrupy almost I, yeah i can see how but, that would do that yeah but it extends the the shelf life of it by like years huh so I might mess with that later, but I still, like I said, I still don't know exactly what happened. If the agitation was just wrong, if it was, I can't imagine that it was light leaks. I really just don't know what would have caused it. Yeah. Um, but that obviously put me into like a paranoid state of mind. Because yeah. Cause I the next like, time you, well, you go to start doing that, you're like, all right, what's I, I, I you, you lose faith in the process. exactly i mean i've only been working with pyro for since like summer of last year so it hasn't been a long time for me to be working with this chemistry i'm still getting used to it it's known to be like finicky at first before like it takes a while for you to get get the groove of it and all that so yeah but uh i went through and i developed a roll of 120 that i had sitting around i had it sitting in the Mamiya for since October mm-hmm. with like five, 
five frames exposed. Um, so I just took some basic photographs around the house just to get the rest of the roll exposed and developed that. That seemed to work out fine. And then I, after that, I did, um, I want to say like two or three sheets of four by five. And that went well. And yeah, I mean, the exposures on them are a little off, but that's not the chemistry's fault. Um, and then I was still unsure of myself at that point, trying to figure out, like I was looking it up okay, well, what's the chemistry color supposed to look like when it's mixed and when it's in a working solution? Um, because a lot of times with, obviously with chemistry, if it turns a certain color, then it's bad. Yeah. But I did that. I mixed it together in a way that I could see the coloration of it um, and it was fine. So then hmm. I went through and developed the rest of the film that I had last night and looks fine to me. That's good. So... So I know that the chemistry isn't expired. I still don't know exactly what happened with those sheets. Um, we'll see how everything scans in, but yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's good. Have you ever uh, considered um, just um, you know getting like a, a, a black and white uh, Lightroom preset pack? Because um, I heard that those are a good investment. You don't have to it's worry about funny. that. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny you mention that though, because last night I was sitting there. So I, the film that I developed last night was um, from two weekends ago, I want to say, mm -hmm. and it was when I had taken the Rico out with me as well yeah. for just a little walk, and I had used the Rico for uh, metering, I think two of the three sheets of film that I had exposed. Oh, interesting. Did that work out pretty well? Unfortunately not. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's it, in theory it should have yeah. because like the settings all lined up, everything was okay. Um again, not entirely sure what went wrong. I I underexposed everything by a considerable amount. Hmm. Um so and I know that I had used the red filter, so I don't know if I just didn't properly accommodate for the red filter and was already underexposed or what the ordeal there was either. Yeah. Uh, I know that like Alex Burke uses. Yeah, I was just going to mention that his, he's, he's had good success with that. Yeah, he uses his all the time. So I think it's just a matter of, I, I don't know, the Rico was giving me one setting. And my spot meter that I've always used was giving me a totally different setting. Yeah, that's, so that's there weird. was like a major, it was giving me on the Rico one five hundredth of a second F, at F8. And the um, the Pentax spot meter was giving me like one fifteenth of a second. Oh, wow. Yeah, at, that's a huge difference. Yeah, both yeah. at F8. So yeah, yeah there's a huge discrepancy there. Like, so I'm not quite sure what was going on with that. Um, yeah. So those sheets well, didn't weird. work out, but... I saw that and I was like, all right, like, let's just go through. I had another four sheets to develop. I'm like, we'll go through it. We'll see what happens here. Like the chemistry I know isn't bad. So it's a, it was a meter. It had to have been a metering mistake. Mm -hmm. But the, the whole time I'm thinking of this, I'm like, digital would be so much easier right now. Like I wouldn't have this paranoia. I wouldn't have to worry yeah. about screwing up shots. Like there'd be such less stress about this. 
even though this stress has never been something that's affected me so heavily in the past. So mm-hmm. it's, it was all just a weird amalgamation of, of feelings that I've really never faced before when developing film because I've never truly cared about messing up the photographs to this extent. And I don't know why these photographs in particular were like so impactful because really they're like, I'm very proud of at least one of them that Mm -hmm. I've developed. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Cause I mean, usually the experience when shooting film is that, you know, there's a lot of prep work that goes into it and decision-making in the process, even, even more so usually than with digital. But then once it's done, there's that sense of relief that comes with it. And along with that, you know, when, once you're, you know, developing film and such, you know, what's, what's done is done. Now you're just kind of going through the motions, getting everything done. But when you lose faith in that step in terms of the process of working with it, um, yeah, I see how that would lead to a lot of anxiety about the process and questioning yourself and everything that comes with it. I think a big thing um, with it too is the fact that, like I said, I haven't been working with pyro for that long. So now you add in, well, this is new chemistry. Am I screwing something up with the chemistry? Like yeah. I had prior to pyro, I had been working with Ilford DDX um, and I had always gotten solid or at least good enough results with that. So I was then thinking, oh, well, maybe I should just revert back to that. But there are issues that I've had with that in terms of uh, detail retention that I just didn't care for, and I like the results better that I get with Pyro. So it was just really, really doubting my abilities as a film photographer and just was not the most pleasant thing in the world to deal with. Right yeah. as I'm coming out of this major winter funk of like <laughs> seasonal depression and all yeah. that on top of everything else. So it's like it's like a welcome welcome to the real world kind of a kind of <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if if for um, people with a digital workflow, whether a similar comparison could be not like losing trust in a particular lens because maybe there's something mm. weird going on with a lens or mm-hmm, something weird mm-hmm. going on with a camera where, where there's some step within the process where, and this is something that, that I've been thinking about in terms of one of the reasons why I've embraced the process that I use is that, you know, I, I like to have with, with each step, I have confidence in what I'm doing as part of the greater process. And I know that all of that work will pay off. And if I make all the right decisions, um, if I follow all the proper steps, but I have, I have a large amount of trust in each step. But if any of that is, 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 is shaken to the point where now you lose that sense of trust, man, that's, that's got to throw you for a loop just because you, you don't really have it's like, what, what's, what's going to go on now? You know, I, I can see how that would definitely be a very uh, anxiety-causing moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I even experienced that when I had, it was only for about a month that I had it, but the Hasselblad that I had gotten back in um, October of 21, mm-hmm. and um, I would develop a film, everything would be great from the execution to development, and then I'd scan it, 
and I realized that like a lot of the shots that I had taken were blurry or like out of focus, hmm. which was, I believe, because of the the focusing screen that yeah. is part of the Hasselblad that I had. It's not. It was a 500C, I think, which so it was is, made for that setup. It it's focusing screen you can't change unless you take it to like a, a repair uh, shop or something you can't do yeah. it at home very easily it wasn't until i think the 501 cm um or the 501 c i might be getting that wrong but um that you could start changing the focusing screens on it so i think it was just a matter of the focusing screen may have been a little like off or it mm-hmm. could have just been that it wasn't bright enough for me to properly see, which is probably more likely. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely get that, that that paranoia of, oh, this camera, this lens, this chemistry, this whatever yeah. isn't, isn't working, giving me the confidence to produce the kind of work that I really want to produce and I know I'm capable of producing, but... Yeah, it's it, and, and it's the sort of thing where if anything throws me off as I'm working, whether, and this is something I know I've mentioned in the past, like it can be, there, there was a time, and I think I, I mentioned this in the past, where I was taking a, a photo on a backpack and trip and my shoelace broke. Yeah. And just th- that one small thing just throws off the entire process, something that small. So yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So you need to have, you know, complete faith and confidence in, in things. And, and when that is broken, it definitely, uh, I can see how that would be a, uh, a not very fun experience. Yeah. And speaking on fun experiences, or yeah. rather, not very fun experiences, yeah. I, I read an article, and I'm curious if you've kept up with this at all. Um, apparently, Fujifilm Japan is holding off on their color film right now. Uh, I, had, I hadn't heard anything on that front. So what, what all does that entail? Is it just not producing stuff, or...? Let me pull up the article so I don't mess this up terribly. Um, but from my understanding of it, they stopped accepting orders for color film amid supply issues. Um, yeah, they had some stuff going on last year when Provia was gone for a while. I wonder if it's something. Yeah, this article says related that to that. It says that it will no longer accept new domestic orders for a range of color negative 35 mil film, as well as reversal film in both 35 and 120 formats due to a shortage of raw materials. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's what I remember them saying last time. Yeah, they're trying to keep, take steps to try and ensure a stable supply of the materials necessary, but need to, need to cease new domestic orders for nine types of film, halting production of them until further notice. Um, the, right now it's just primarily in Japan, um, that it's going to be affecting things, but obviously that's going to trickle over. Yeah. Um, right now it's Fuji color 100, superior, uh, premium 400, superior X, extra 400 along with Velvia 50, Velvia 100 and Provia 100 F. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad I bought like $5,000 worth of Provia uh, last year. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm very well stocked up, but uh, 
but yeah, I think it's good to know, especially if, if people are, have been thinking like, oh man, I need to order some more, I would, you know, not, maybe not a bad time to look and see what's out there and maybe stock up a little bit. Cause last time when Provia was hard to come by, um, it was about a half a year or so until it started showing up again. Mm-hmm. And so if it's something along those lines, yeah, just, you know, it'd be good to make sure that one has, uh, has some on hand. So what did that 5,000 get you? Like 15 sheets, 50 sheets? Yeah, about that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, you, you've got maybe a year's worth of, of photographs. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'd say I, I honestly don't know off the top of my head how many boxes I have. I think I've got like, uh, I don't know, eight, nine, ten boxes, something like that. Um, so what, what I've, is that I've, in a I've box, used then? some. Uh, it's 20 per 20 sheets per box. Okay. So you have a, what, what is that? Like 200 sheets? Is my math correct there? Something like that? Some, somewhere-ish in that yeah. range. Yeah. Okay. So, I wasn't sure. So, I can never remember how they package color film yeah. versus, because I know it, uh, I was about to say digital film. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I know with black and white film, it's like 25, I want to say like 25 sheets. I don't, I always yeah, buy like, the, it's, it's the, more, which is nice. Yeah. I always buy like the boxes of like a hundred sheets at a time just because that's my year. So, yeah, but I'm going to actually have to stock up on film at some point too, because I'm running low ish. Yeah. A little bit. I think I have like maybe 50 sheets yet. So that'll cover me for at least Acadia. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, there have been a couple of different things that I've noticed popping up with just camera related, um, Weird products, I guess, would be a good way to describe them. That I okay, just... I'm curious. So the one thing that I saw was, and I think it's just available over in Japan because that would make sense. They have a lot of interesting things that come out of Japan. Yeah. But it's a red dot site for your camera. Uh, I know Olympus had one, and there was another company as well. Which, which one is this coming? What company is this coming from? I don't remember what company it's coming from. Um, again, let me pull up my notes here because I have. Because when, when I worked at the camera store, uh, I know Olympus had one, and I think there was another company as well. This and... one is from uh, Kenko Tokina. Okay. It's But the weird thing about it is that it's like, so Olympus had theirs, and I yeah that was referenced in this article or someone had mentioned it. Um, but at least with Olympus, it didn't look like it was just a rifle or a uh, a gun red dot because mm-hmm. this one looks exactly like what something you would put on like a pistol would be okay like it looks like this company had made them for for guns and was yeah. like huh let's just put this on a camera yeah. like it doesn't it doesn't like blend in nicely with a DSLR or mirrorless body or anything it's just like it's there yeah. and I don't quite like, I guess like, some people were saying it's for like tracking of like wildlife and that kind of thing to, but yeah. at the same time, I don't, I don't quite understand that. Maybe that's yeah, So it me. was, it, it, we had, uh, when I worked at the camera store, uh, we had the ones from Olympus and it was a clever design. It, it would pop up mm-hmm. and then when it pops up, um, it has a pretty generous viewfinder and the way that the the site works, I mean, you can look at it from side to side, but the as you move your eye from side to side, the dot stays fixed. Right. Yeah. And so the thought was that you could 
basically matched up to a center focus point on your camera and kind of calibrate it. So, you know, you put it on a tripod, you aim the center focus point at something, then you kind of aim the red dot so that they're kind of the same. And so now you just, you can just hold the camera up and just look through that site when uh, it just makes it easier to aim the camera at like a bird flying in the sky that would otherwise be really hard to find by just randomly pointing your camera up and trying mm. to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what people are using. They're using it for wildlife and stuff of that sorts. I'm not sure of any other uses beyond that. I'm sure there are some, but that was that was a primary use for customers when when we had them. Interesting. Yeah, I'd never I'd never seen that like done before. It wasn't until this article that I even knew that it had been done before with Olympus. Um, yeah, makes sense. I mean, given that, like you said, the red dot's not going to move. So, like, when depending on how you orient your face. So, hmm. and, and for the people listening, they might be picturing something different. They might be picturing like a red laser that you shoot at the subject. Which oh, yeah, this is yeah, not. Yeah. Um, this is simply just a viewfinder with like, it looks like a red focus point in the middle of it. And as you look through there, basically that's, um, the same thing that the center focus point on the camera would see. So it just allows you to align with distant subjects. If you had like a 500 millimeter lens or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now if it did shoot out an actual laser, that'd be cool. Cause I just take that hiking and when a mountain lion showed up, I just have some fun with it. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Have, so do the thing where it kind of chases his tail. That's yeah, always a it's always a winner. So let's see. From our conversation so far, you would be eating peanut butter from a squeeze pack with a bear. Yes. And having in one hand. In one and then hand. the other hand, I will be uh, playing uh, chase the red dot with a mountain lion. Okay. All right. Yeah. We'll have to get to like a trifecta here at some point. In a couple <laughs> episodes, we'll figure that yes. out. <laughs> yes, for sure. One of the other things that I, odd products, not really odd, they're very useful and I'm glad to see that they're doing them, but just the execution of them was kind of weird. I got an email from Intrepid and I'm sure you got this one too. Um, if you're subscribed to their stuff still, mm-hmm. um, they just released a focus hood and a half frame, uh, dark slide thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found the focus hood design to be very odd. I don't know if you checked that out yet. I saw it in the email. Yeah. Um, typically with a focus hood, at least from like Chamonix, they have it where it just attaches to like the back of the camera where the ground glass is still attached to the camera. So like mm-hmm. it's strictly like just together. It's not like you have to remove a part of the camera to put the focus hood on and then swap it again. Mm-hmm. But with this intrepid design, it looks. Oh, never mind. I see what they did. Okay, that makes they more usually, sense. They usually have like a folding design. Yeah. So when I first looked at this, and I had just looked over it quick, it looked almost like you had to take the ground glass itself off of the camera, grab this other apparatus with a focusing hood, put it onto the camera and then focus, and then swap them again. Just from a real quick look at it when I did it. Yeah. Obviously, that's not the case, because that wouldn't make sense, now that I'm thinking about it more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, The I had the, the first uh, large format camera I had, it was a Toyo. It was a 45A2. 
And that camera had a built-in hood, which I imagine is very similar to the Intrepid one where it was on the back, you flip it open, and then it has like the little cloth sides. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it worked fine. Um, though I found that for what I was doing, I would still need to use the dark cloth. And I found that kind of got in the way a little bit. Um, so hope, I, I, would, I would think maybe their execution might be a little better or something. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't used to it. I could also see how it would be good for if a person is using it to shoot something other than landscapes, like maybe portraits or something where you want that quick setup of the camera and you're not as, you know, trying to dial in very specific stuff like a, uh, like a landscape would require. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I actually looked at this a little bit better, cause the video that they put on, it just, some, for some reason, it just did not click in my head that even to focus, you would still need the ground glass regardless <laughs> yes. of whether you have. So yeah, it, it definitely, it does look like a clunky design though. I will say that it's, they, they always are going to be like that just by their own nature. I think. Yeah. I can't imagine them being like you were saying, you can't imagine them being very useful for depending on the situation, maybe in the woods, they wouldn't be too bad. And I, I know a lot of, um, or certain cameras, like you said, the, I think the Toyo and other ones like that typically come with one, um, yeah. And actually, I think if if I remember right on the Toyo, if you didn't want to use it, it would like hinge out of the way or something. And I think that was the part that I found to be kind of annoying just because it, it would hang out in a weird way. Yeah. I think yeah. Alex Burke had a Toyo too. Um, and his, like you could see that it, it would hinge a certain way that you could get it out of the way a little bit. But again, yeah, I could see that being more of a pain than it would be useful definitely something yeah. for like portraits or where you know you're only photographing in specific conditions i mean there are modifications that i need to make to my little homemade dark cloth um probably this year i should really get on that i want to make it so that it actually velcro not velcros but like has elastic within it so it can better attach to the camera um, yeah because right now it's essentially having a blanket over my head um Having a good, well-made dark cloth is, I, I think, is one of those things that makes life so much easier in the field. It seems like such a simple thing. It seems like, yeah, I just get a pillowcase or a shirt or something like that. But when you have one that's actually purpose-built and you're not fighting with it, it makes life so much easier. Yeah. I mean, luckily, I haven't really fought with mine much, but... There are definitely times on like real bright sunny days when I'm out that I have to like cinch it and move away and like position myself a little bit different because of trying to see everything on the on the screen. Um, yeah. So it's not like 100% ideal, but it's worked really well and really cheap for me for the past, what is it, going on four years now. So I can't really complain. Plus yeah. it was easy to make since I know how to sew and everything. So that was helpful. That's yeah. Fun. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so for the past uh, week, so we're recording this on a Thursday. And uh, starting on Sunday um, has been when I've been on the hook for the jury duty. Oh, boy. And uh, so the way it works for this one, and my wife actually had jury duty last week. And then I have it this week and they're at different courthouses and they're different court systems and such. 
for hers, it was the sort of thing where she, you know, went down there and then she wasn't called like 80 something percent of the people were, but she wasn't called. So she's done. But for me, it's one where I have to call in uh, basically every single day after six in the evening. And then it tells me if I have to come in the next day. That is such a weird system. Yeah. It's two weeks of that. Um, (laughs) So it's just like, it's like this thing that's hanging over my head and I can't, there's some things I really do need to do. I mean, I have a very flexible schedule, which is great. Um, So it's not like I have to deal with having an employer and last minute schedule changes. What an inconvenience to have to do that for, you said two weeks. That's two weeks. Yeah. So, so the first call in was Sunday for Monday and they said, you know, you don't have to come in on Monday. Then I called on Monday for Tuesday and I want to come in on Tuesday. So the latest call was yesterday for today. And they say, I don't have to come in today, but call again on Sunday. So I've made it through the first week. Um, but then next week I'll have another week of this, but there's like some, some things I need to get repaired on my car before going on my spring trip, which is still a ways away, but I can't really make any appointments for that because I may very well have to go all the way downtown. So it's, it's kind of a, a a weird, uh, place that it puts me in. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I'm on this end of it and not like, you know, sitting in handcuffs for littering <laughs> yeah. in the national park or I don't, I don't yeah. know, like, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a best case scenario that it's like, you know, it's just a drag to have to kind of do this, but it does definitely put things uh, a little bit more on, on hold. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, the, that's been my week. I, I've been working on, um, I'm basically done with the, um, second volume of Unpolished. I just need to do some uh, looking over the type and to make sure that everything on that is is in good shape. Um, and that's still many, many weeks away. But I had a, um, a print order that came in and there was something that I, I haven't made a video about this, but it's a very simple thing that perhaps could be beneficial for people listening to this. Um, so the prints that I make are from roll paper and roll paper is very difficult to work with. Once the print's done, then you have to decurl the paper. Right. And so I found a really good technique where you just reverse roll it in a yoga mat Hmm. and it, it reverses that curl. And then you just, you do that once you kind of let it sit for a couple minutes and then you unroll it, flip the print around the other way so that you're, you're decurling it from the other side and uh just one of those little magic tricks that that works wonders so that's that's the other thing i've been working on is i've been waiting for the potential jury duty to uh to manifest itself which hopefully it won't yeah hopefully not uh, but we'll we'll see on that but I, i i could see it being like super disappointing in a way like you just wasted all this time, these two weeks of, all right, now I got a call. Am I going to get called in? Do I have to go uh-huh. in tomorrow? And then you just do that and you don't have to go in at all. I could see that being really like, in a way, irritating. Like, yeah, you wasted all this time and I don't have to do anything. So why would I even bother? Like, Yeah. At a certain point, it's just kind of like, I'd, I'd almost rather have been called in the first day in that way. At least it'd be over with. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but this this is a slow time of the year for me. All, all the work I have is done, so I don't, I don't have any excuses from a work standpoint or anything like that to to get out of it. So. Yeah. But yeah, it's, that's it's still that's been my life. <laughs> but right in line with talking on Prince, I was before we got on this call, I was uh, watching a new video from Simon Baxter, and mm-hmm. he was going through uh, one of his recent winter photographs and. I can't stand watching his videos most times because he's just such a good photographer. And oh yeah, to see him working in such the same vein as myself, like in terms of woodland photography, and to see the work that he produces, I'm like, I'm just gonna pack up my camera and go home. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention the some of the photographs or sheets of film that I had developed uh, last night. Three of them were winter like actually had snow look like winter mm-hmm. photographs and i'm like like i said i i got this one that i'm like yeah i'm proud of this one i like it it's more of like a human element in the woods kind of deal which is a trajectory that i've or a path that i've been walking down more mm-hmm. and then i see this video and i see what he produced and i'm like yep the camera's going away again <laughs> <laughs> but outside of that in this video he was doing um from capture to print and he's done a couple of these videos like you go through and he either shows the um the process of making the photograph with him in the field or in this one i think he didn't have the camera out when he was making the cam when he was making the pictures he didn't have his video camera so he mm-hmm. was just more so talking about it and showing the image up on the screen and different variations of it that he'd done and he then goes into the editing process and how he messes with the image to get to the final product of what he wants all while thinking about printing. And then Mm -hmm. he goes through and prints the photograph, simple, basic enough video. Um, Yeah. But then it got me thinking like, has that ever been something that you've done in terms of like showing the process of the printing and such? Yeah. Or at least thought of doing because I, uh, I, I know you've done like editing some editing videos or whatever a little bit at least yeah and some like on how you package your prints i think you have a video on that um but i don't think you've i don't know that you've done something like this no i, I haven't done anything talking about the pro i mean i've done somewhere i talk a little bit more about like the just like the technical side of this is how i get accurate prints but I haven't done any where I'm touching more on the the thought process behind it and mm-hmm. the digging deeper into it and all that sort of stuff. But also, I, I just don't know that I have much to offer in that regard. Um, I mean, for me, it's, it's just a, a, a process that I do, but I, it's nothing I've really thought about doing a video on and and I'm not sure why that's any different than uh, Simon showing his process yeah and why I haven't really thought anything because because obviously he has a really great way of doing things um, but I just haven't really thought there's anything special about the way that I do things that would be of interest that's something that I struggle with a lot too like with my writing and just in general with like 
I've been thinking about making presentations and presenting to camera clubs and that kind of thing. But that whole idea of not having anything or not feeling like you have anything worthwhile saying. Yeah. But at the same time, like I'm sure Simon feels that same exact way. Like, Oh yeah. There's no doubt about it that he looks at a video like that or the idea of, and is like, eh, is this really worthwhile? But I think it's a matter of like how you package it as well. Like for him, it's not like he's just showing you, okay, this is how I edit. This is how I print. It's not that basic. It's more of like, okay, this is why I captured this photograph. This is why I chose this one to print. Here's the philosophy behind my decisions that I've made for every step of the way. Like, here's why I chose to print at this size, or this is the the general idea of how I wanted the image to look. So this is how I got it there and why I wanted to get it there. Like, so I think if you take on an approach like that, where it's more more obviously beneficial and at the end of the day we all have something to bring to the table that is worthwhile sharing so yeah which which is very true i i think for for me it's very difficult to create a video like that just because of the i don't know it's those are the sort of videos that i have i have a hard time doing i I, I think I'm much more, um, I, I do much better when I'm in the field versus most of the stuff kind of more in the studio and, and talking about the thoughts behind stuff, the reasoning behind stuff from an image is one thing, but when it comes to translating to a print, it is it is a, a, a tricky one. Like I could see, and I, I know you're not one for like, clickbait or like super (laughs) super like technical videos or anything like that but like just just thinking about how beneficial it could be for people even like myself so speaking very selfishly here to like (laughs) (laughs) but i know that i would get a lot of benefit from watching a video capture to print from you or like in that same vein watching a video on how you go about your um, portfolios and making your portfolios, obviously ton of work in and of itself. And then adding video to that is even more, but yeah, the point still stands. There's definitely a lot of value in those type of videos that you could bring to the table. And I think those listening and those that aren't, that are a part of your YouTube audience and all of that would get a lot from that to be able to see that process. If for maybe not for their own photography or if they're not into photography, whatever, but just to see that other side of things of the other side of how you run things, I think would, I can see how that that could be uh, something to me. That's something um, for like the summertime months when it's like, maybe after I've, you know, spring trip is done and there's, there's a lull kind of in my schedule between that and the fall trip. Like I could see doing something, something along those lines, perhaps I'll have to add that to the list and, and think of a, a way of making it sound smart. <laughs> Cause that's a challenge. Cause right now it's like, here's a picture of a tree and I uh, printed it. Here's a picture of a tree uh, there. It's a picture of a tree. I, 
Here's I, I think I have a hard time with the, the reasoning, uh, reasoning behind it. But, but just like you're saying, I, I think, I think people are, they, they'll pull stuff from it that they will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. There is a, a, a little bit, uh, unrelated, but maybe not so much. I, I have a question for you. Do you, do you play Wordle at all? I've dabbled. You've dabbled. So I, cause I was thinking about this. I, I don't play it every morning. I play it many mornings. It's kind of the, the routine I have. And, and I've gotten, there's only one that I've missed. Um, I haven't played all of them. There's some where I'm just like, yeah, I, I can't figure it out. So I'm just going to leave it here. And cause I don't want to reflect on my stats. I, that one I missed still, still haunts me. <laughs> but the, the reason I asked this is I'm curious if you have a strategy for Wordle. And this is going somewhere. I'm just curious if you have a strategy for Wordle. For the few times that I've actually played it, my my problem is I like to try and stay away from my phone in the mornings and it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so adding Wordle to that where I feel like, oh, I'll wake up and do Wordle. That's a great idea. And then I'm off doing something else on my phone. My only strategy would be to like use as many as a word with as many vowels as possible to mm-hmm. knock those out. Um, yeah. Other than that, no, not really. So my strategy since the beginning is I start with the, the, the same four words every single time. And those words are tears, chimp, blown, and fudgy. Very serious words. But they use like the, all the most common letters. So wait, when we say tears, are we talking like tears of a like level or are we talking tears from Tears of sadness or joy. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, so between all those four words, tears, chimp, blown, fudgy, um, they, they use like the most common letters. And then I'll have, I'll know basically every letter that's in that word. I'll have a good feeling for the order. And then I can guess it on the next try. And I was just thinking about how my approach with Wordle, it's kind of a slower approach. Sometimes people try to get the answer as fast as they can in as few guesses as possible. I have a more roundabout way of doing it. And it's only once I have all those variables on the tail, on the tail, on the table, (laughs) or the tail, maybe my dog's sitting there and it's on his tail. But once I have all those variables in play, then it's easier to make a decision. And I was thinking about how this is kind of similar to if I'm pulling up to a stoplight and it's red and I'm in the right turn lane, I will glance at the other light to see who has the green because I want to know who has the green before I turn versus the person behind me will be like honking because I paused for a moment before turning right. But I think this whole thing in terms of needing to know all the variables at play before making a decision is part of a process that I use for so many different things when it comes to photography and everything else. And I have a feeling that many people just fly through, uh, you know, they'll just pull up to a stop, no one's moving, they'll immediately go without even looking to see who is, who has a green, is there a pedestrian in the crosswalk? I think there's so many people that just fly through these decisions without thinking about it. But I was just thinking about that when I was playing Wordle, that I really need to have all those variables on the table or the tail uh, before I'm actually in the right mindset to to do something or to make a decision. 
So that's why I was curious about your approach on Wordle and if that kind of says anything either way. Yeah, I can't I can't say that I have that kind of approach when it comes to like Wordle. I yeah. I'm of two minds cuz like obviously I want to get it I want to get the answer in as quick of an order as I can because mm-hmm. like that's the idea. But at the same time I'll I'll often like sit or I'll put it away for a while and then I'll come back to it after a bit and try and figure it out mm-hmm. um, instead of just randomly guessing and trying to rush through it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people do that. But then there's like all these words like there, there, like all, all these different things that are similar where there's about, you know, five different ways to go. And so I don't know. It's just you can almost do like a, a like a um, like a, some sort of um, study on people's wordle techniques versus how the rest of their life is. Because I feel like there's some correlations there. I don't know. Just uh, it, it's a, it's a reflection of, of of one's mindset. Of course, the smart people are probably ones that are not addicted to their phone playing Wordle every morning at four fifty three. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I can't I can't help not. them. The smart people are the <laughs> ones who invented Wordle and said, "Okay, now let these people get addicted. We're going to go off and actually live our lives in our million dollar mansions and go off on our three million dollar yachts and etc." Sounds kind of nice. Yeah, it must be. I want to know. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed our creative banter. You can learn more about Cody's work by visiting his website, CodySchultz.com. And you can find my work at BenHorn.com. For further discussion, join us at Patreon.com slash creative banter. It's a place where we can interact with you, the listener. And although we greatly appreciate those who contribute by joining a tier, discussions are open to everyone, whether you're a paying member or not. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you around next time.